That's great. It's going to be a great weekend. I, I want to encourage you, especially, you might be a, a lady in the house and you're new here and you're just like, oh, I couldn't go to that. I, I, don't, I don't know anybody. I'd probably feel awkward or out of place. I can tell you something. I, I actually did get there myself a little bit, and I didn't even feel awkward or out of place last year. So, you know, I saw a little clip. They, they let me come say hi. It was pretty fun. But uh, what I really do want to tell you is you will end up, if you feel like I wouldn't fit or I wouldn't know anyone, I want to tell you it's the exact opposite. It's one of the best things you can do go along for the, the, the couple of days, and you will end up getting to know some, some incredible women. They'll be part of your tribe. You'll be part of theirs. And before you know it, you'll have some great connections. So it's an, a fantastic weekend. Um, and so I really encourage you to think about being a part of that. Uh, you know, this morning, now we are, uh, we're going to come to to hear a great message right now. And if you're uh, new here or haven't been around for the last, uh, or just come in the last couple of years, may not have met him, but we've got with us a special guest today, a uh, friend of our church for a very long time and a uh, great friend and my mentor, Dr. Martin Sanders. Give him a hand as he comes up. Bring the word. Thank you. Well, it's obvious, but I'm good at stating the obvious. Um, I keep coming back. And so either you're welcome or I'm sorry. You, you, decide, you decide which that is. Um, I will be seated today, not because I'm getting older, but because of the style of message, I'm kinder when I sit down. And so I thought, ah, this message, I, I need to be more gracious, so I will stay seated. Um, and I also tend to go shorter when I'm seated. So that should have applause, so there you go. But um, I, ha I have some news. Um, on Friday, my, uh, my daughter had a, another set of twins. You, you might be more excited than she is. Uh, she has twin boys that are just turning two and a half. Yes. And, and now twin girls. So four under two and a half. And uh, they're, just, they're just trying to figure out, how, how are we going to do this? She's a lawyer. They both work jobs that have where you do billable hours. So they're just trying to figure out how, how does life work now? So some very well-intentioned people, predominantly female, uh, say you should move near them and help with care. I think it went to a vote and it didn't pass. <laughs> I said I think I, I would actually serve the family better if I uh, either charged more or took on different jobs and paid for a full-time au pair or something like that. I think that's better use of time and money than me moving to you. So that's, uh, that's what today looks like. I want to talk to you today about your soul. Uh, this is a two-part series, the way the services run. <clears throat> and so I will do two. I've prepared five. Uh, and they told me you would OD on five, so I only get two. And so uh, we're, we're going to start today with the life of Moses. I really want to take you someplace with this, but in order to get there, we, we have to go at the, at the sort of the root of your soul. What's there? Anything left over that needs to be addressed? 
And so let's just take a look at this. Let's talk about the soul. The Bible's filled with conversations about the soul. But it's been fascinating how pretty much around the world the church hasn't talked much about the soul. We've talked about lots of other things. We use terminology about relationship with God that the Bible doesn't really use. The Bible uses lots about the soul, and we tend to not talk about it. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, going back more than 20 years ago, people started to say to me, Martin, you talk more about the soul than anybody I know. And I said, you're welcome. And they're going, why doesn't anybody else talk about soul? I don't know, you need to ask them. It just makes sense that we talk about the soul. And so in those days, even as a young minister, I figured out early that part of care of the soul was a natural part of discipleship. It's, it's been out there, again, forever. Last, uh, just a few months ago, uh, I was driving around um, in cold weather on New Year's Eve day, and had the radio on, and the Archbishop of all of New York City um, had a commercial on, and he goes, you know, just wanna welcome you to a new year. Here's the five things the Roman Catholic Church is gonna do for you this year. And number four was care of the soul. I thought that's interesting. There aren't Protestants on talking about this. The Roman Catholic bishop of all of New York was on the radio talking about that. And he did it with such sincerity. And I thought, they're, they're prepping for this. So it's about your soul. Some of you have been around when uh, my friend and colleague and mentee Rob Reamer was here and did soul care. If you haven't seen that book, it's a, it's a really well done book that sort of creates seven stages of how to deal with the roots of the soul. But today's gonna be different. Today I wanna talk about your humanity and just the sheer human side of your soul. Today you're not gonna get better as a religious person. You can take care of that other times. I just, I just wanna talk about your humanity. So as we focus on humanity, I'm going to ask you to just become a better person, if that's possible. Some of you are going, I, I don't think it's possible. I, matter of fact, I think people think I'm the best person they know. <laughs> yeah, keep, keep believing your own press. And uh, just, yeah, but pay attention. Somebody else may say something different. I'm going to ask you to actually become a better person. Because what happens to us sometimes is we get better religiously. But the people closest to her are going, can, can you, can you kind of deal with that other stuff, please? Because that's the part that we, that's part we find difficult. I, I, can't tell you, I can't tell you how many people I listen to who are talking about their parents. And I figure out, you know, they're going, ah, you know, my dad's, and they fill in the blank, or my mom's hard to be around. And I listen to them, and, and they're going, yeah, you just, you, we're just going to have to deal with it. I go, how old are they? Oh, they're 54. And I'm going, oh, that's like a long, long time to deal with this. But it's like we, we don't dare address it. Well, what, what kind of family do you have? If you don't address those kinds of things, there's no mutual respect. You avoid each other. You tell each other lies. I mean, what kind of family is that? So I'd like you to become a little less religious and let's just go after any, any potential leftover stuff that could be in your soul. 
a lot of what I've done over the last uh, 25, almost 30 years of living in New York is work with the, uh, the Wall Street crowd, the executives, high finance people, et cetera. And one of the things I figured out early on is uh, predominantly the men I would talk to, uh, they were doing great at work. They were, they were making ridiculous amounts of money, but things weren't going well at home. And I thought, ah, we, we got to address this. And so I listened to them and it was fascinating because most of the time, they took no responsibility for this. They're mostly blaming their wife. And I listened to it for a little bit and I go, uh, let me just talk to you. I said, okay, look, you're a really smart guy. I mean, it's just obvious. You're well-educated, you know what to do. You're a smart guy. You're so smart that if she was like this, you wouldn't have married her. You're too smart for that. So somehow she became this being with you. And they looked at me like, I, I didn't expect this one. I, I, I thought you were gonna be on my side. I said, I am. I, we, can't, we can't fix her, but we can help you. So here's the deal. Back in 99, Diana and I decided we were gonna do a four day thing where we took people away to do, focus with executives, focus exclusively on relationships and marriage. And so we did, we said, well, we're gonna take them place that they would go themselves. So we've always held these at a place like a Ritz Carlton at some resort kind of place, warm and nice, and invite them to come. We don't charge them anything, which these people with ridiculous amounts of money go. It, it's just, you can't do this. You can't hold this and not charge us. Here's why we do it. Uh, we wanna take money off the table so you don't have to think about it. Everyone wants something from you, not me. I don't want anything from you. Here's what I want. I want you to be a better man. I want you to be a better husband. I want you to be a better father. I want you to be a better person in the community. Basically, I just need you to be a better man. So how about if you just shut up and get better? And then depending on what they need, my perception, they either put my hand in the middle of their chest and say, let this sink in, or it's New York, I punch them in the peck. People go, you seem to punch a lot of people. I said, only male, and only if they need it. And so the question is always, how many have punched you back? And I said, none yet, <laughs> but, but we'll, we'll take care of this. Last year I was up in Canada and speaking at a conference, I think it was called Welcoming the Spirit or something like that. There was a young couple I met, liked them. They were late 30s, three boys. Just, they just looked good. And they, and they were, they were moving ahead well. And uh, sometime during the week, I, at a break, I said to her, I, I'd like you guys to come to this uh, thing I'm doing with, with uh, executive couples. They, they were business owners. And she goes, oh, that would be so great. We could come and be four days with you and we could get deeper in our in the spirit, and I go, no, stop. No, that's not what this is. I, I'm watching you guys, and I, I'm kind of hoping for your husband to become a better man and better at home. And oh, she latched onto that, and she jumped in, and she goes, that would be so good. He needs, I go, stop, because you need your stuff too, hon. It's not just him, it's you. So it's, easier to see in other people than ourselves sometimes. So let's just go after any leftover stuff that needs to be addressed. I wanna take you to the earliest parts of the book of Exodus. It's, it's the earliest stages of Moses' life. 
If you've been around church or faith, you kind of know this story a little bit, but it's a hit and miss thing. So the first part of Exodus just said, hey, look, the, uh, the Hebrews had been in Egypt for a long, long time, and the Egyptians found the Hebrews annoying. Now, here we are, what, uh, more than 3,000 years later, and it's interesting how this dislike of Jewish people keeps spiking. But see, if we don't say anything, we're almost part of the problem. And it's not just Jewish people. I'm going to ask you, if you're going to be a better human, today, just identify, what, if I've got any bias, any prejudice, if I actually reference people as those people, oh, that's not good. It's a soul issue. Needs to be taken care of. Because as someone who shows up in church on Sunday morning, you kind of don't get to be one of those who doesn't like those people. Agreed? Yeah. But if you're always silent, no one leads in the conversation of how do we deal with this. So there's not these statements and other things made and done. So that's the backdrop to this. So annoying, the Egyptians found the Hebrews, that the king made an edict that we're just going to kill the boys. And so we pick up on this text. He'd made this edict. And in chapter 1, verse 14, by the way, I didn't put up the text so you could read it. Because this is a, this is a narrative. It's better if you listen it's a narrative, then read it and analyze it. So just listen, I'll fill in some of the details for you. So the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be there at the childbirth of every Hebrew woman. I want you to observe on the delivery stool, and if it's a boy, kill him. Now that's, that's a tough edict. I mean, that, that's tough when the, the king, the ruler, says, look, I, I still don't like these people. I'm going to kill the boys. Now, one of the things that fascinates me, we'll, we'll pick up three of these in this first little bit of Exodus. One of the things that fascinates me is what the Bible gives as details and what the Bible doesn't give as details. So this is one of these. I'm going, I'm reading this going, you're supposed to observe on the delivery stool. And I'm going, I don't, I don't want to picture ancient Near Eastern Jewish women on a delivery stool. Like, that's not an image I like as a man of my stage of life. I'm going, please, I don't want the image in my head. There's more of them to come. But see, the, the Hebrew midwives wouldn't do it. They figured out a way around it, and the king picked up on it. So he goes, okay, since you didn't do your job, in verse 22, Pharaoh gave an order to all of the people. Couldn't trust the midwives, so he gives it to all the people. Every boy that's born must be thrown into the Nile River and drown. You weren't going to take care of it? I'll take care of it. And so we move into chapter 2, and it gives this outline and narrative of the birth of Moses. And again, details. He was born. They didn't know what to do, so he thought, we can't hide him any longer. We're going to create, and it gives detail, a papyrus basket that they created. 
put tar and pitch on it. And I'm going, it's interesting you give these kind of details. We get later and you don't give the details that we want to know. And so they thought, we're, we're just, we're going to put him out in the water and flow. And he got caught in the reeds. And while he was there, one of Pharaoh's daughters came down to bathe, saw the baby. See, it's one thing to create an edict when it's just generalized people. But when you see a baby, I mean, come on, when you see a baby and you're going, I'm supposed to kill this. It's different when you make an edict than when you see a child. It's just different. And so even the, the house of Pharaoh said, I'm not going to kill this kid. They decided to keep him. And he had this odd thing that as a Hebrew child, he was actually taken into the palace of the king who wanted to kill him. You want to talk soul issues, we'll get to them in just a minute. And so there he grew up. So as we look at this passage, here we go. At his birth, he was sent down the river, not knowing what may happen. A Jewish child adopted by Egyptian royalty, had identity things, lived in some levels of isolation, couldn't be with his family nor his people. Trying to figure out who am I and why am I here? What do I do? And then this identity security combo. I, I want to talk about it for just a minute because I, I would say probably in the last year, at least twice a week in conversations, I listen to somebody, regardless to age, both genders, no matter the country and culture, and I say to them, this conversation we're having, where you're hoping that you can sort of move up another level, you're trying to figure out why this stuff is still plaguing you. I go, you know, this is a basic identity security thing. In your life, you don't feel as secure as you would like to be, probably even need to be. People of faith, as many of you, immediately jump in and go, I think I need to discover my identity in Christ. And I go, do that, but that's not going to help this part. This has to do with family of origin. This has to do with phrases you grew up with. This has to do with the stuff that runs in your head. This is the human stuff. You can get better in Christ and still have this stuff stuck in the back of your head. So, yes, do that. Find your real identity in Christ, please. But recognize you kind of need to be a better person, too. You got to take this one deep. So what are some possible soul issues for Moses here? Well, basic identity. Identity asks the question, who am I really? The literature has been filled with this question forever. Who am I? Then it's the adoption thing. We, we know adoption is sometimes creates identity issues and challenges, but especially even more so if it's cross-cultural or cross-racial, racial. It's like, who, who am I really? Whose am I? And then the possibility of rejection issues or abandonment things. Who wants me? I don't know how this got started. It's a dark thing that happens. But kids who think they're funny say to a sibling, you're obviously adopted. You're not like us. They don't like you as well. I can't tell you how many thousand, seriously, a few thousand times I've heard this. And I go, y y you know your, your siblings are just sort of being stupid. I go, yeah, but I kind of believe them. I don't look like the rest of them. I am different than the rest of them. They've created a whole life narrative based on something that's not even real. And then the anger issues. 
Moses had them. We'll look at them in just a minute. But the question is with possible soul issues, what do I do with my deepest emotions? Let's talk about anger for just a minute. Probably one of the hardest things a human has to go through is if somebody you know, love, live with, etc., goes, Ooh, you're really angry. Yeah, what, what, what do you say? Yeah, I know. Most of the time, we mildly defend ourselves. And when we do, we're even worse because if you defend yourself, you, then they say, not only are you angry, you're in denial. You can't win. So let's just talk about what do you do with your anger? By the way, if you don't think you have an anger issue, great. But if you're sitting beside someone who has an anger issue, please raise your hand. No, don't. <laughs> it's so much easier to see in someone else. By the way, men get blamed for it all the time. It's not just men. I promise. It's not. It's a human thing more than it's a gender thing. Women are sometimes kinder or more devious in how they express their anger, but it's still there. So I was talking about this last week. I go, whatever you do, do not, do not read a book on anger. It'll make you more angry. I, at one point, I read 20, trying to figure out, is there a good one? No, because there's always something behind people's anger, and a book has a hard time pinpointing it so it feels like it's you. But I have found one. It's not a book, it's a booklet. It's less than 30 pages. It's called Releasing Anger. It's published by Hazelden Press, which is the people who write all the addictions and 12-step stuff. So I mentioned it last week at service, and immediately afterwards I had people going up because I've already Googled it. It's hard to get here. Um, you can't buy one at a time. It's ridiculously expensive. So we've ordered them for you all. You're welcome in advance. <laughs> by the way, um, I think they'll be $5. They'll be here by Friday. Now let's just be cautious for a minute. Friday's Valentine's Day. Do not pick yours up on Friday and give it to somebody and go, I have a present for you. Now, by the way, level of laughter, level of guilt usually go together. So some of you are going, I probably would have done that. I know. I know. That's why I brought it up. Please don't. Please don't. But if there is some deep emotion you don't know what to do with, it's a little booklet. You can read it fast. It is called Releasing Anger. It's a really worthwhile read, I promise. So Moses' narrative part two addresses the anger. I'm not just trying to be push a little on you about your unresolved anger issues and other deep emotion. The passage moves on in the middle of chapter two. It just states it matter-of-factly. Listen. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out with his own people, the Hebrews, and he watched them as they labored. And I'm going, see, he, he doesn't even get it. He's a Jewish guy. He got to grow up in the palace. Now he's watching his mates work hard, and he's not. And what happened was there was an Egyptian guy who was abusive to his people. So it says he glanced over his shoulders. You guys know how this works. You look over your shoulder, and all the Bible says is he murdered the guy. Well, that's a little harsh. That's a little harsh. You're going, wait a minute. You give us details of the birthing stool? 
you tell us about the basket and how it was covered, and then you just come to this one and go, he murdered a guy, and then the, the narrative moves on. And I'm going, wait a minute, this isn't because I'm American, and I want all the details. Um, it's not because I'm a bloke and I, I love like blockbuster movies and things get blown up and there's a, no, no, no. I'm going, this is, this is a big deal in his life. This is a big deal in history. And all it says is he murdered a guy. And after he did, he ran away. Which, by the way, we tend to do either physically or at least emotionally when we don't deal with our toughest issues. He hid the evidence, dug the guy's body over, covered it up, hid his own life. Carried out a secret for too many years, too many decades actually. Had a profound sense of shame. What do you do with that, especially when you run away and hide? And he lived the vast majority of his early half of his life living in unforgiveness. It's no fun. So it's 2020. What do soul issues look like? Control is one of them. He lost control. He wanted to be in control. Moses lost control, almost ruined his life forever. He got a handle on it. In my earliest days of trying to help people, both in their lives as a speaker, but also in realms of the spirit, I said, the only thing the Holy Spirit of God wants is control of your life. That's all he wants. The hardest challenge he has is getting control of your life. Because you keep control. And like one of the worst things, it's almost worse than being accused of anger, is when somebody says, you are so controlling. No one wants to hear that one. But if we we're honest and could hear well, the Spirit of God may go, you kind of are. I, I'd love control. I don't get it. Because you keep it. And by the way, it doesn't look that good on you. It just doesn't. Giving me control, way better. So it's one of the soul issues that still has to be addressed and get to the root of this thing. Secrets. I wrote a book, uh, I think 16 years ago now, called How to Get the Family You've Always Wanted. It's now out of print, intentionally. I took it out of print because all the research was done probably 20 years ago, and everything in families has changed. You have to deal with stuff in families you never had to deal with before. And so we've intentionally taken it out of print, probably going to rework it and re-release it. When I first wrote the book, I sent copies out to 50 people and just said, give me some immediate feedback, if you will, please. What I found fascinating is 43 of the 50 people immediately responded and said, Martin, the book's pretty good. I knew it was only pretty good. And they go, but there's one chapter that should have become the whole book. I had one chapter called Dealing with Family Myths and Lies and Secrets. And 43 of the 50, that's 86% without any, any other triggers or thoughts, any suggestions, they said, that should be the book. The whole book should have been about this. So much so that I've now had 11 families volunteer to be the case study of dealing with family myths and lies and secrets. They said, we, you can use us to put it out there because it's almost ruined our family and a lot of the lives. What I found fascinating was a number of the people that I sent the book to would have been internationally known as leader families. 
And they actually said to me, Martin, every family, and one of them on the phone said, remember who I am. Every family has secrets. See, here's why you deal with your secrets. Because they're not just yours. They affect the people who love you. We're going to talk generations, John did. Other people shouldn't have to deal with your issues. And we all have to do teaching on this kind of stuff about family patterns, family sin patterns. My job's not to make you feel bad. My job's not to make you feel good. But it's time that you become a better person. So secrets have to go. Anger we've covered and shame. It's a little awkward right now, so let me break it for just a minute. Both testaments of the Bible use the same phrase. Do these things with all your heart. Not casually, not when it's convenient. With all your heart. It's communion. In communion, there's always something to leave behind and always something to embrace. We're going to take you someplace this month, but it's time first to offload, get rid of some stuff. So if there's anything there with all your heart, you ready? With all your heart. Go after this stuff. Please. In a narrative talk like this, it's always interesting because you do the what, and then the so what, and then the now what. We're shifting now. This is so what. So what is the discipline of honesty? Last June, as I was off speaking, doing different things, I found it fascinating, so I started to keep track. Because in three weeks, I had 40 people say to me, Martin, you must be the most honest person I've ever met. Well, that's a strange thing to say. So I said, what, you and your friends lie to each other? They go, kinda. They go, so when you're together, music playing in the background is tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. <laughs> and they go, yeah, we just don't say anything. I said, no, no, you're actually worse than that. You don't say anything to them, you only say it about them. Oh, that's a terrible person. It's a terrible person who does that. The discipline of honesty. So I began to ask, why is honesty so rare? So here's one of the things I want you to think about. How do I become a person who actually creates in my life a discipline of honesty? I had to do it when I was young because I wasn't a good liar. Or I was too good and I knew it was going to get me in trouble. Because I, I figured out I was pretty good at just shifting, like, tell enough of the truth it was real, but so I wouldn't get in trouble. I thought, if, I, if I'm going to make it as a good person, I just have to take on a discipline of honesty. I have to be ruthlessly honest with myself and people I'm with. So apparently at this stage of life, it's so rare, it makes people either notice or uncomfortable. You are dreadfully honest. Well, I'd like you to join me in this one. The people who love you most won't like a little bit of it in the beginning, but in the long run, it'll make a difference. Because see what happens, if we normalize dysfunction, it's still dysfunctional. 
Like the absence of bad doesn't make something good. It's just not as bad. When your normal is dysfunctional, it still is just that. So I'm going to ask you to do something that I hate to do. I'm going to stand up. Please look at me. Please look at me. Look at me. Um, I have now lost a little over 37 kilos. No, no, no. That's not the end of the story. So recently in a conversation with my family, they said, Dad, we, we love that you've done that. Look, we lost our mom. We want to keep you as long as we can. So whatever it takes, take care of it, please. They said, I will. And uh, they said, okay, but you say that, let's make sure it's clear. They said, uh, we'd like you to quit celebrating how much you've lost and finish it. I go, what does that mean? Oh, their numbers were ridiculous. And it was all the way from slightly gracious to, oh dear God, I don't think that would ever happen. I think I weighed more than that when I was 10. <laughs> I mean, when you, when, when you weigh over five kilos when you're born, it just goes up from there. But what hit me was this. I thought, you know, as the kind of man I am, I would never have allowed happen to my soul what I let happen to my body. I thought, but I, I think for a lot of people I know it's the exact opposite. They would never, never allow their body to do what they've let happen to their soul. Because seeing the body, you can see it. And for me, it got slightly embarrassing. Enough so to take care of it. So if you're one, that your issues need to be addressed in the soul, take care of it. Take care of it. See, remember the goal, honesty, absolute forgiveness, freedom. We already sang about it. When I first started traveling as a speaker, I thought, uh, this is kind of boring. Uh, you know, you go do stuff and then you don't know these people. You don't want to just sit around and talk and chit-chat and you don't know their life, their world, etc. So I thought, I'm going to do surveys. So I put together five questions, finally limited it to four. And within the end of the first year, I had 800 surveys. I now have 2,500. I don't know what I'm going to do with them. But it was really interesting to listen to people. And here, here's the simple ones. Since coming to a personal faith in Christ, and if people hadn't, then the conversation went a different direction. But if they had, since coming to personal faith in Christ, what's changed most about your life? It was so fun to listen to people. I mean, they're, they're, the energy that came to them, you could see it in their own physicality. I mean, they, they, would, they would lift up. I mean, they would sit straighter. Uh, there, there was a, a gleam in their eye. Their, their voice would lift. They would tell these great stories of life change, so much so that it was taking too long, I had to cut them off. So immediately went to question two. What did you anticipate would change but hasn't changed as much as you'd hoped? And it was fascinating because as they started to talk, the tone changed. Their physicality changed. They slumped over a little. Their rate of speech slowed down. They started to whinge. They started to blame other people. It was fascinating to me. I had to cut numbers of them off because they weren't taking responsibility for their own lives. And I said, okay, number three, just honestly, 
Second Corinthians 5, 17 says, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. Look, the old stuff's gone, and wow, look at the new stuff. So let's just be honest. Why haven't you changed more? That's a great question that no one wants to deal with. Why haven't you changed more? Why is that stuff still around? And again, it was fascinating to me how much blame went to other people. How many excuses? Just the tone was no fun to listen to. So immediately went to number four, that is, what are the next steps if you're gonna go to this next level of change in your life? And it was fascinating how few people could identify two steps for life change. So much easier to blame somebody else. So much easier to excuse yourself. So much easier to whinge and talk about how hard it's been. We're now at the now what. We went from the what to the so what to the now what. You ready? It's time to tell yourself the truth. Just time to tell yourself the truth. And while you're at it, Tell God the absolute truth. Because you see, he can neither forgive nor heal what you don't acknowledge. I'd tweet that one if I was you. He can neither heal nor forgive what you don't acknowledge. So if we're going to talk honesty, this is the time. And then a few trusted friends. Most of us aren't going to get better by just admitting it to God. Besides, the people who know us and love us most, they kind of know it. But a few of you are good at secrets, but most of us aren't. Like the people who love us most go, duh, I knew that about you. I tolerate you anyway. Sometimes even love you anyway. I mentioned how many people talked about my honesty. The other one that I probably get more than anything else is people say to me, Martin, you may have the best friends of anyone I've ever met. I go, no, I actually do have the best friends of anybody you've ever met. And they say, how do I find them? Don't find them. You cultivate them. See, if you're going to have good friends, you've got to be one. I have guys, real blokes, that are just, we, we have conversations about life and love and faith. About the kind of men we dream of becoming. I got couples that I meet with that are close friends because I need this, this stage of life, I need good women in my life, too. I've got a couple of trusted female friends. Great friends who walk you through this stuff. Man, they're worth a lot. Not just tell yourself the truth. Live it and enjoy the freedom. Here we go. We're done. This is part one of part two. I can't take you to part two unless we deal with part one. If you come back next time, I wouldn't if I was you. Could be lethal. <laughs> it's better just go, I don't like him, and stay home. But if you want to, if you want to. You see, the last half of Moses' life got fully redeemed. Like he dealt with all of his stuff. And he, he actually became one of the people that history writes about as being one of the people closest to God. We want to get there, but you can't get there if you don't deal with the root things still left in the soul. 
If you could, I wouldn't have this talk with you. So I really want to, next time, I really want to take you somewhere. You deserve it. By the way, it's really fun to go there. But you can't get there if you don't deal with the root issues of the soul. So we're going to work with connectedness, and we're going to work with how to get up close and personal. You ready? With the father of your soul. As mere mortals, there's not much of anything better than that. I want to take you there. I want to take you there. I'm done. I thought that would be applause, but no, that's okay. It's, it's communion day. In communion, there's always something to leave behind and always something to embrace. Take this as deep as you can take it and then go a little further. We're going to have uh, prayer teams on the side in the back. If you need somebody to go, I kind of need somebody to listen to me. We've got trusted people who are good at that. If you want some quiet time, there's just alone. There's place, space in the front. Grab a seat. Make sure any leftover issues rooted in the soul, you're beginning to acknowledge them well.